Hi everyone, welcome to Training with Casey, where we explore animal training and living our best lives with animals. I'm Joseph Laughlin, producer of this podcast, and now here's your host, Casey Covert. Let's get started. Hey everyone. Thank you for joining me today on Training with Casey. It's Casey Cover, your host. And today I have a special visitor. And um, this is Jackie Knapp. And Jackie has a delightful but really challenging bloodhound. And she took a class with me and then got started listening to the podcast. And Jackie figured out how to leave comments, and some other things. So we're going to talk about all that. But first of all, let me introduce Jackie. How are you doing, Jackie? Fine. Excited to be speaking with you. I am so delighted you're here. And you've taught me a lot. For example, what we have to do to get comments or to have people follow. Well, my problem is I still can't figure out how to like you on that thing. I've spent a lot of time. I cannot figure it out. That's okay. That's okay. I'm so happy with what you have gotten done. And I love reading your thoughtful comments and comments help us, you know, just um, with the ranking and the accessibility of the podcast. But for me personally, they're lifeblood. Because I'm out there talking away, hoping that something is relevant to somebody. And the only feedback I get is how many people listen to the thing. But nobody says very much so far. And you're the only person and you're you're really dedicated about leaving the comments. So I just want to say I cannot tell you how much I appreciate that. And... For example, because of the insights you gave us, I moved the average podcast time up to, you know, 45 to 55 minutes. Which is terrific. Well, if other people would like them to be shorter again, they just need to leave comments. So my problem was with the first 15 or 20 that I listened to, because you have 66 podcasts up, I was afraid to leave comments because I thought, you know, they probably sound stupid or I just felt very self-conscious about doing it. But now that I've started doing it, I'm just relaxing more. And there's always things I can think about that apply to me and my dog. And I always make a comment on the things that I can remember because there's so many things that you bring up that by the end of the podcast, I'm thinking about the last few rather than the first ones when I make my comments. Yeah. Right. And so many of the things, um, for example, um, you gave me feedback about the need to talk about euthanasia. And that's another podcast you and I will do together. So, you know, when you leave a comment, it helps our rankings and getting the word out to other people. It gives me feedback and support, and it helps me to be responsive to you. You know, what would be of interest to you? So can we just go over how in the world you became able 
to follow and comment because it was not an easy thing to figure out. And when I wrote Podomatic, I never did get a reply from them. So <laughs> please educate us. Well, I kept trying and trying and I just couldn't get it to work. And I kept seeing at the top sign in. I thought, okay, what do I have to sign up for yeah. here? So I signed in and they have two plans. One is $2.99 and one is free. So it's for people who want to do a podcast. And I guess you get the bare minimum with the free one. Well, okay. I don't want to do a podcast, but I don't mind signing up for something that's free. So I just did the sign in for that. And now every time I go to the podcast, my name's up at the top. I'm signed in and I can comment. And the first thing I did was follow because every time you do a new podcast, I get an email saying there's a new podcast up, which okay, I love. Great. So I get to see them and don't have to watch because you don't do them at exact intervals. That way I'm notified if there's something. Well, theoretically, we do. <laughs> well, you've been doing more than I expected. It's great. A lot of them come up. I mean, it's not like every Monday you do one, is it? Or I haven't noticed a particular. Well, theoretically, we do them Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Wow, that's a lot to give people. It is a lot, but we found that uh, it it seemed to be the sweet spot for a lot of people. However, wow. it's a lot of work for Joseph and I, and Joseph is in school now and still working full time and still helping with the podcast. And so we're trying to help him preserve his sanity. <laughs> so we may be streamlining things for a while, but in any case, yeah. So, and, and when we were doing 15 or 20 minute podcasts, that's easier too. However, it turns out that I used to talk to people every single day, several times a day when I was doing demonstrations with animals. And there are so many people we estimated conservatively that by the time I had been doing this for 20 years, I had talked to two and a half million people. Wow. And when I quit doing it, I'm not saying I was staving this all off, but when I quit actually having a chance to talk to people and engage them directly with the animals and so forth, things started going really awry. All of a sudden, PETA is, you know, this big force and all these people that are not reading the fine print of what PETA is saying are sending them money and parroting what they say. And all of a sudden, people like me that are trainers and animal managers and zookeepers and so on, that have dedicated their entire lives to animals and many, many late nights, right? Going in to take care of sick animals or to go break the ice on the sea lion pool, whatever. All of a sudden, we're the bad people. So when I was at University of Maryland, I had talked about this on another podcast. There was a faculty member that immediately disliked me because I worked with exotic animals. And he just accused me of being a slave driver and that I was only in it for my own ego and, and things like that. And it's like, wow, 
that is not at all what it is. I don't deserve this. But more to the point, my job is to bring people and animals together. And a lot of these other interests that are kind of claiming the high road, they actually don't want to see people and animals together. Like Ingrid Newkirk of PETA has said repeatedly that animals are better off dead than with people. And I wouldn't want her making the decisions over my life. You know, if I were an animal or definitely if I, if I am a person. <laughs> so, yeah. But that was one of the many things I learned. See, I wouldn't know what questions to ask, but then you bring up things. I had a friend that used to donate to PETA. She's passed away now. And said she'd cry when she'd see those commercials with the abused animals. But when I went to the dog shows in the last few years, the people are terrified to leave their dogs at an outdoor yes. dog show in a crate because the PETA people come along and turn them all loose. Yes. So you answered my question. I couldn't figure out what sense that would make. Well, and they have set them loose. And I remember at one dog show, I think in the Pacific Northwest, it's a long time ago now, but uh, the dogs, at least one of them ran straight out into the street and got killed. Yeah, I mean, obviously, they have, especially bloodhounds, the wrinkles go over their eyes, they pick up a scent and they'll run right in front of a car. Right, right. So the whole thing about doing these podcasts is to get out there and connect with other animal lovers and, you know, give them more information, critical information that they wouldn't necessarily automatically know, but that would be critical to their uh, decision-making processes. So that's why, you know, we talk about these things, euthanasia and, um, you know, the fact that not every animal can be helped by training. It isn't always the owner's fault that the dog has behavioral issues. There are dogs that have mental illness and birth defects and epilepsy and autism and every other, you know, curse that we have medical and behavioral other animals are subject to that there are always animals that are not right in the head and it is amazing how many of them we can help and turn around it appears to be over 97 percent of the truly difficult cases that come to me because i'm not the person that people come to you know, first, uh, when they want to train their animal, like you didn't come to me first, did you? To be very honest, I had heard of you many years ago and had connected with you just with emails. And I was always told the prices are really, really high. And I just don't have a lot of money. And so that's the only reason. Otherwise, yes, I would have come to you first. But and didn't you, well, you've had dogs for a long time. Didn't you go to other trainers also first? 
Yeah, but most of them, uh, you know, they take one look at the big dog, you know, I'm not letting any of my trainers touch that dog. My knees are bad. And, you know, I don't get a lot of cooperation. I know you work with big, huge animals, so you're not going to tell me the dog's too big. Right. No, that's true. Well, and one of the reasons I don't have to tell you that is that with sats, we're not relying on leashes and collars to train dogs. And by that, I mean no e-collars. We don't rely on toys. We don't rely on food. We do use food, but we don't have to use food. And we can still be effective. And it's amazing because the first thing we do is we get buy-in from the animal. And we just ask him, can you do this? We're not big on giving orders because you could give orders all day long to elephants and lions and bears, and they don't have to follow them. (laughs) You're not going to be able to go in and make them do a single thing. But even if you could, no matter how fierce these animals are, they're still emotionally fragile. They get hurt feelings. They get stressed. Then they don't do as well. So we don't want that to happen to them. We want them to feel confident, included, respected. So that's how we approach things. When we do things that way, the animals will bend over backwards to keep us safe. You know, one thing I found in the podcast that I hadn't realized, and I should have by now, is that when you went into shelters and things and saved dogs that were scheduled for euthanasia and trained them so they could be placed in homes and all of that. The people getting these dogs did not have to know anything about SATs, which is amazing, which is amazing. That amazed me too. Like I wouldn't do it that way. Right. You know, I, I would tell everybody but the fact but they is, don't need to know they don't have to manage the dogs managing themselves at that point. They don't need yeah. to know all these things. Yeah, and we didn't know that until that point. Yeah, that's so. Amazing. It was. It's actually very lucky for me that it happened that way. And but this is a truly amazing thing. This is how significant it is to switch things on the animal and to quit saying do this. And start saying, this is what I'm trying to do. Can you do this with me? Yeah. And then the animal starts to do it and you go, yeah, that's great. Well, could we, could we add this? Well, let's see, you know, and you're working together, you're collaborating. And there's a little video of a crab on my website at cinelia.com slash press. And it's a, um, a little green crab named Spike and he learned to get into a bowl and he can't walk backwards or he couldn't walk backwards, but he could kind of shuttle back and forth and kind of angle backwards. And he would do this. And then when he hit the bowl, he'd put his little spinner swimmerettes in there and then he put his claws in and then he'd be able to pull the rest of himself in. And so then we would go and look at its carapace under the microscope and so on for the research. Well, one day I came in and I put the bowl in the water 
and Spike comes up and grabs my thumb in his pinchers. And he scared me, which tells you what a lily liver I am. And I shook him off and I kind of, ah! And then I realized how stupid that was and how unfair because I was asking him to trust me and he would get in my glass bowl and go all over the lab like I was the mothership, right? And so I put my hand back in there and Spike came over and very gently held on to my thumb and pulled himself forward into the bowl. So here this little crab came up with a better idea for how to do this. So I was speechless for a minute just now because it's so moving to me even now when I think of Spike and he was so much smarter than I imagined he would be. Most people would not imagine that that type of animal would be smart. I, you know, I would never think of it. Yeah. Well, we've kind of been told, oh, they don't have this ability because they don't have a brain, blah, blah, blah. Well, some of the smartest animals are octopi and they don't have the same kind of brain we do. I'm not sure what they have, but, you know, they're they're still really smart. I worked at uh, Scripps Institution of Oceanography for a while, and they have a wonderful aquarium there. And I'd go back and visit the other aquarists, and there was a Pacific giant octopus, or giant Pacific octopus, whatever. Her name was Mabel. And... The young guy was trying to feed Mabel and Mabel was trying to get out of her tank. And they kept these clip on lids because if Mabel got out of her tank, she could dry out and die before she could find her way back in. <laughs> and so he's trying to keep her in the tank. And Mabel was so funny. She's like, insinuating her tentacles out of the, you know, in between the lid and the <laughs> tank. And she's stroking him on the face and on the neck. And she's entwining her tentacles around his arm. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he's, you know, saying plaintively, Mabel, please, can I just feed you, Mabel? Please don't try to get out, Mabel. Please. And it was hysterical. So sometime later, I came back and all the guys, all the Aquarists were sobbing. Not necessarily out loud, but their tears were just welling out of their eyes and just all over their cheeks. And so I said to one of them, what happened? And they said, Mabel died. Aww. The octopi only live about three years. Oh, wow. Yeah. They are so smart. And we we can identify, we resonate with their intelligence. They have a sense of humor. They're dramatic. 
I mean, how how can they be dramatic? At Scripps, they had two blue ring octopus, and they are uh, very small, generally kind of beige, pinkish, beige-ish color, but they have these uh, lit up, illuminated blue rings on the you know, side be between the head and the tentacle. If they bite you, you're going to die within something like five oh, minutes. So they had put two together and it was not a happy pairing. And this one little octopus was trying to avoid being attacked by the bigger one. And he was looking all faded out and no color, right? And limp on the ground. And so the Aquarius fished him out. Now they have to fish him out very carefully. They have to have the right equipment because you could not put metal in the saltwater tanks or it could cause a big problem, at least back then. So they have to fend off one octopus while they pick the other one up. And this is before you had, you know, silicone tools and so on. <laughs> So it was like with a little wooden dowel and, you know, who knows what else. Anyway, they get this one octopus up out of there and he looks like he's going to die. And the other octopus is strutting around, no lie, on his tips of his tentacles. His webbing that goes down to the legs is all stretched out like he's one of those ghost figures. <laughs> And he's all really dark colored and his blue rings are all illuminated. And it's like he's making himself just as big as he can. And he's stalking over to get after this other little octopus. And the other little octopus is like, no, help, help. And the Aquarius is like, stroke him. No, you'll be okay. We're going to protect you. Oh, please don't let him get to me. And the other octopus is I'm going to get that. It's like ridiculous. <laughs> so they had to, you know, make the other one a new tank and all this kind of stuff until I saw it myself. Like if you actually watch these guys, Jackie, you would not question anything. They obviously knew what was going on. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. They weren't insensible or coincidentally doing these things. They were having a full-fledged drama. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know they could be aggressive, but I guess any... Yeah. yeah. I know. I know. Like, or I I thought back then, you know, before I actually saw this, oh, well, yeah, they wouldn't, like, hate each other. Yeah. Maybe they would compete for territory. No. Anyway, all these animals are like this. Um, we had at National Zoo a male named Norman and a male named Rusty. Aww. And Rusty was so smart and so charming. And all the <laughs> girls loved Rusty. And Norman was huge and imposing and could beat Rusty up. And you would think that everybody would get married to Norman. <laughs> but what would happen is all the females would do an end run around Norman and run up into the holding area where they could talk to Rusty. <laughs> yeah. And 
at, at that time, you know, people say, oh, well, the male that's the beach master, he gets to breed all the females. No, he gets to think he breeds all the females. The females just like his property, but they're going out on the side. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. So it isn't automatic. At the time I was at National Zoo, Norman had a favorite wife. That was Pearl. Aww. He had two wives. His, his second favorite wife was Maureen. <laughs> but he had multiple uh, children with Maureen, I believe. Definitely with Pearl. But Pearl could take food from Norman. Nobody else could. <laughs> so he did not like Maureen the same way he liked Pearl. But Jenny and Esther, he maybe had a pup with one or the other of those. I don't recall now. But they didn't have full wife status, either one of them. And Amber, he never went near. Oh, how funny. Yeah. So it isn't automatic. They have preferences and compatibilities and so on. Anyway, that's what this podcast is all about, is sharing the inside story so that people understand the nuances because this is complicated stuff to manage animals well, to manage their habitats well, and to take care of the earth. So when you listen to the podcast and you give me the feedback, you're really helping me to uh, get back to doing that, which I really appreciate. Well, you were saying, you know, suggesting in the comments things you would like to talk about. Like, like I mentioned euthanasia just because I have strong feelings about it. Yes. But a lot of things that you come up with in the podcast, I would have never thought to ask until you hear them. And, and you know, because it's things you don't mm. think about. Well, you had said to me, that there were podcasts that you didn't want to listen to, you know, just because you didn't think they'd be relevant. And one of those was adopt, don't shop, good or not. And I remember you saying that that one didn't seem relevant to you. And then you wrote a wonderful comment about it. <laughs> so how did you relate to it or do you want me to read the comment or I don't happen to remember the comment but I know my own feeling is in the part of California I'm from they push it like crazy you know everybody you run into I have purebred dogs I've had 12 bloodhounds I love my bloodhounds and I have my reasons for wanting them but people treat you like you're a criminal you know well we, mm -hmm. mine's a rescue and this one's a rescue and I just <laughs> sold a crate to someone today who came with a little pit bull cross in her car that was just crazy and barking and acting nuts and she and her husband said you know yes we adopted this dog from rescue we're having a terrible time but we're trying to work through it mm -hmm. but it, I have a lot of feelings about this trying to force everybody to adopt because I've always felt that you don't know the history, you don't know the health history, right. you don't know if they've been well fed and well, had the nutrition they need to have a healthy life or if you're getting all those problems too, right. and, and how they've been cared for. You said it in better ways as far as, uh, you know, that a lot of people have given them up for a reason, but yeah. even not 
uh, there's just so many things you don't know about those dogs and you can try to find out what breeds are involved, but you really don't know what tendencies. Most of these pit bull crosses, you can, I have nothing against them. Some of them are sweet, wonderful dogs, but just like bloodhounds, they're not for everybody. And well, that's it. You know, the, there are a lot of dogs that are, um, well, purpose-bred dogs. I don't care if it's a pit bull or a German shepherd or a herding dog. These dogs are purposely bred to be genetically driven to do certain things that people find are useful. Mm -hmm. And the name pit bulls comes from the fact that the butchers wanted dogs that would grab the nose of the bull and hang on so the butcher could get in there and slit the throat of the bull or not the whatever, you know, whatever cow or whatever. Yeah. And that's a tough dog. Yeah. That's a, has to be a courageous dog and a very fierce and not easily discouraged. Right. Yeah. So they had a really important purpose. And I know that bear and, uh, wild hog trainers or not trainers I'm sorry hunters really a lot of the ones that I knew really loved pit bulls and they had their own breeding they they weren't interested in the registries or anything but they were interested in the quality of the dog and I had a friend that was a professional cowboy and rode horses for Hollywood movies and all this stuff. And he had his pit bulls all tied out and they were all a certain distance from each other. And he would go out there and watch those dogs and talk to them and play with them and everything else. But he was really strict. He would not tolerate anything if that dog was looking like it would uh, you know, give a problem to a human. And he would make sure his children went out there and, while he could supervise to watch the dogs and everything, to give the dogs a chance to learn about the status of the kids and the fact that, you know, you're not allowed to eat them or bite them or anything like that. Anyway, so these dogs are, you know, they're all great in the right circumstances. And sometimes the extremists really do everybody a disservice. For example, in the Netherlands, they had cart dogs. So these dogs would, you know, pull wagons full of bread or meat or whatever from the, you know, shop to make the deliveries or from the wharf to the shop, whatever. And all of a sudden, it became illegal in the Netherlands to have a dog pull a cart. Anybody that's ever done cart pulling with dogs knows they love it. Like dogs love to pull against stuff. And yeah. all of a sudden you're taking that away from the dog and it's not to their benefit. Yeah. Why, why did they not allow it? They felt it was hurting the dog or? There's this whole thing that's really strange to me. It's like, um, 
oh, just like the researcher that said, you know, I was a slave driver and la, la, la. Hey, I work for those animals. They work for me. This is how we survive together. Yeah. I'm not a slave driver. I'm not an exploiter, but I am a hard worker. So these people would work with these animals and then somebody else just made an arbitrary decision. It seems to me that, oh, this is exploitative. You know, you you should not expect an animal to help you to earn a living. Newsflash, if people do not find benefits in living with animals, fewer and fewer and fewer people will live with animals. And the net effect will be the animals will become extinct. And from what I've seen of animals, a lot of people will get a dog and put it out in the backyard and then they can't figure out why it has no personality whatsoever. And people like me who, you know, who spend all their time or as much as they can of their leisure time with the dog and talk to them and treat them decently, then they want to be around people and they have personality. They start to understand everything. Mine figures out everything. He's got every handle in my house figured out where he can just popping walk through the house with his nose and open them all. And then if it goes inward, he opens that one too. When I give him his pills, I shut the door and lock it. And then we do our things in that area. Otherwise he's opening and running all over the house. Yeah. Yeah. He is a rascal. Oh, he is. He's funny. I, I, he got the crate. I have the man fixing my wife. I have a 10 by 10 little office and he has a crate in here. He loves, and he popped it up. It's one of those folding crates, but he's 120 pounds and it's 40 long. He was managed to pop it without us hearing it and pop the front down and I turned around, I, where's the dog to the man? Because the man had been bitten before. And I said, don't worry, my dog's in a crate. And he put his hand, he said, oh, yeah, it's a sweet dog. And I, where's the dog? He goes, oh, he ran off a while ago. So uh-huh. I went and, looked, and he went in the kitchen and got a dish towel, which he loves, but he swallows. And was oh, running around the living room having the best time with that dish towel. But I decided, you know, I leave him sometimes to go to the store. And I don't want him getting loose and eating yeah. something. So I went to the Home Depot, got these little U-shaped things that have screw threads on both ends, and then they have little tiny nuts you put on there. And that way I could put the top of the wire crate to the sides of the wire crate with that and tighten the bolts, and he cannot pop it up, okay? Well, I come home one day, and one of those bolts is in the middle of, you know, three feet away from his crate on the outside, thank goodness. And Mm. I thought, how on earth did he do that? And I mentioned it to a friend that came over. I said, you know, I don't know how Disney could do that. While we're standing there, he takes his tongue as though he understood what we were saying, this huge animal tongue, and gets this little tiny nut and starts unscrewing it with his tongue. Now, how on earth did he even know which direction to go or get his tongue there? Yeah. But, you know, they figure out more things. Yeah, they do. And that's like I was saying about Spike. I had chickens in a Wild West show at the University of Maryland, and those chickens knew over a hundred words. And, you know, it was amazing. Like they would come and peck on the door to be let in. I could tell them it's time to take a bath and they would 
go up a ramp and jump into a pot of warm water. It goes on and on. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's just amazing. Well, I can do a share screen thing, which I'm doing right now. And we can actually look at your comment and just see what uh uh what you what you noticed that other people might resonate with because i'm not sure if other people can even see the comments yeah well when you put adopt don't shop uh i did not expect to hear about spay and neuter and you know and the population of dogs being decreased if all the dogs that were available were all spayed or neutered before owners got them at a very young age right there were just a lot of things that came up i did not expect to see in that i just thought it'd be a real quick oh yeah you gotta adopt you know they're gonna kill these animals if you don't adopt yeah. them and, which is yeah because i'm not actually for that am i no but that's why i really wasn't too interested in reading that because i hear it all the time you know they look at you like you should feel guilty about owning a purebred dog and i don't well the people that have an agenda about this stuff are very wily they study marketing and all that stuff so they don't say commercial dog breeders they say puppy mill i have an animal science degree i've been studying this stuff for a long time there's no definition that's equal to a puppy mill but even people in my family will say yeah pejoratively that is a puppy mill and it's like okay it's a commercial farmer of dogs and you may be correct maybe they shouldn't be reared on these raised you know uh wire things but it's not right to attack the farmers that are doing everything legally. And um, the whole thing of saying it's a rescue. When did it stop being the pound? Um, <laughs> when they or, spent a small fortune here to remodel so they could sell more animals and they make cement sofas that look real. I mean, the money they have spent and raised to remodel the pound is unbelievable. Because they can afford to do it now. But, you know, it's a shelter or it's a pound or it's um, animal control yeah. or it's not necessarily a rescue. Like if there wasn't a dragon involved that you had to slay in order to save this animal's life, if you didn't have to go in a boat in the floods, if there's no fire, you didn't rescue the animal, yeah. you rehomed him. You gave them a chance at another home. Where did it come in that we use manipulative language to rebrand people and what they're doing so that you're not just adding a new person to your family to love, but you're rescuing someone. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's just, you know, deliberately manipulative. Now, do I get dogs from the shelters or dogs that are problems all the time? But I'm a professional trainer and I can't fix all of them. I, I, I would say with dogs from the shelter, there's at least one thing that I haven't been able to fix with every single dog. And they weren't terrible things. But um, 
like Bo never really connected with people. Yeah. You take him to the vets. He liked everybody. I think he thought we were all idiots. He would come <laughs> into the vets and he, and they're like, you want to go in the back, Bo? And Bo, Bo's like, yeah, you seem much better than my real owner. Can I go home <laughs> with you? Yeah. And uh, Kia, Bo's wife, was a husky. She was a wonderful, creative dog, but she was a runaway. And so was Bo, by the way. <laughs> and one day, man, we tried to be so meticulous and I never let a bear out in my career. I never let, I never let out any zoo animal during my career, but Bo and Kia have both gotten past me in the past. <laughs> so Kia's running around and they both had long histories at shelters. And if I Got in the car. You know how they say, oh, just get in the car and open the door and your dog will jump in. Not so much. These two dogs would act like uh, we were questionable. They'd never seen us before in their life and they were afraid of us. So I go across the street where my dog has run and I don't know these neighbors, but there's a Confederate flag flying there. I'm a little bit hesitant. <laughs> and... The neighbor's dog was a very friendly lab and she jumped right into the side doors on my van and Kia wanted to play with her. So I start talking to this little lab and Kia's coming closer and closer. And all of a sudden the owner of the house comes out very quietly looking very pensive and not very happy. And he says, why are you putting my lab in your car? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, uh, I'm just trying to get my dog. <laughs> yeah. I haven't, uh, I, I missed that opportunity to make a good impression on that neighbor. <laughs> so anyway, let's get back to the comment. It says here, you do agree with a statement that neutering all dogs at any age definitely is not in the best interest of the dog's health. And Jackie in Europe, they think we are like out of our minds, unethical, cruel to do that. So it just goes to show how much the spin of the culture affects these things. Is it terrible to neuter a dog? Sometimes it's necessary. But I agree with the Europeans. I don't do it most of the time. Okay. My my breeders have been breeding top champion bloodhounds for 50 years. And they're, he's a retired vet. They had a beautiful practice most of that time. And when they sold the dogs that were not show dogs, they required they be neutered within by the time they're six months old. And they never bothered me because they knew I wouldn't just go out and breed their dogs. So it worked out fine yeah. for me. But now they're ones that are big because he's he used to be uh, president of the California Veterinary Association. And Davis has done studies and they found, depending on the size of the dogs, the larger the dog, the more problem it is. Yeah. And that with the giant breeds like bloodhounds, until their whole body is fully mature, which is until about three years old, you should not neuter a male because yeah. it affects their whole development. And even after that, the change in hormones and everything affects yeah. everything in the dog. And it does not fix the dog's behaviorally either. 
No, it doesn't. No, it, it could. It can make a change, and that change may be uh, beneficial, but it also may be detrimental. And there is no guarantee what will happen. Right. Right. Well, yeah. When you have dogs, I even wouldn't. I don't even want to see breeders require you to neuter the dogs because they're not good puppy puppy quality as long as they weren't being passed off as show dogs yeah but we really need all the diversity all the genetic diversity we can get we need to avoid winnowing the gene pools down and I forget when it was, I think it was like in the 30s or something. At some point, Dobermans, their uh, stocks got so diminished that they are too closely related. And it's such a tragedy because Dobermans are wonderful dogs. And as long as you have a wonderful the one. most vicious dog around. My mother used to work at a kennel and Dobermans had the worst reputation in the world in those days. Well, it's really interesting because I have heard this about many kinds of dogs. Like I talked to uh, one of the shelter managers here and I was saying, well, you know, what do you do with all these pit bulls? Blah, blah, blah. And she goes, oh, I don't worry about the pit bulls. It's the German shepherds that have me worried. Oh, really? So, Yeah. You know, these, these various kinds of dogs, the, the long and short of it is the dog needs to go to an appropriate home. Well, we have a big dog show here in San Francisco that's a bench dog show, huge dog show. And people go there and they kind of find a breed they like and they want to get. And the trouble is the ones that are there, like Chow Chows, you know, we've had some really mean ones when I worked for the vet. I knew a girl yeah. that rescued a wolf that had been shot in the head and they came to have pictures taken where I worked and I was afraid of the wolf. She's don't be afraid of the wolf. It's that chow you want to worry about, but some right. of the chows are terrible. But when you go to the San Francisco dog show, all the chows sitting on the bench are the sweetest, cutest little teddy bears you ever saw. Yes. You know, you have I no noticed that at Crufts too, yeah. where um, I remember people bringing can of Corsos by and, and, yeah. <laughs> you know, other dogs like that. And um, I said, you know, can I meet this dog? Yeah, this dog is great with people, blah, blah, blah. That is not the typical. Exactly. Yeah. And I agree with you on chows. There's a lot of dogs like this. A lot of people don't realize that there's an entire class of dogs called molossers. And these are all working and protected dogs they don't necessarily look a lot alike, but they include uh, um, Brasilia, uh, Brasilia Falero, Falero Brasilia, we, okay, P Dogo Argentino, um, Great Danes. There's one that looks almost like a Newfoundland that has big, huge hair. They're beautiful looking, kind of reddish face, dark. And they're big like St. Bernard, and they have really full hair around their heads. They look beautiful, but I've been told they are very aggressive, too. Yeah, to, is it a Tibetan Mastiff that you're thinking no, about? No, 
No, this thing has fuzzy, furry hair, almost like a chow chow on the top of its head. It's some weird off one. I've seen a few pictures and oh, yeah. that's a beautiful dog. And people said, no, they're vicious. Well, and, and that's the thing. I'm not even going to say these dogs are vicious, but they are not looking for friends. Yeah. And you just have to know that. Now, I got to tell you, we worked with somebody in the Netherlands that had a, I think it was a Canapresario. I, mm-hmm. I always get these names mixed up. And uh, anyway, he he was at the seminar. He was too dangerous to have in the seminar. And one of the guys that was there with us, th- this dog that was dangerous got put uh, down in the basement in some special kennels. So we could go work with him, but not have him in the you know seminar where he could hurt somebody. And one of the organizers was this really great guy, um, that had been a professional rugby player and he had the audacity to say hi to this dog and the dog held it against him. He didn't like the football player and he threatened him and all this. So we went down there with, you know, our SATS protocols and we taught the dog something called looking at you, not look at me, but looking at you. And it probably took, 10 to 15 minutes, 20 at the most. And we progress from, I'm going to look at you for a second. Here we go. Good. Okay. I'm going to look at you for two seconds. One, two, here we go. Good, good, good. etc. To as a group jumping up and down while we made a fist, you know, made one of those fists in the air yelling, looking at you now. And the dog was just like, okay, yeah, all right, we're done with that step. So the next day, I got a call in the middle of the seminar, and the that dog had been left at home. And the girlfriend of the owner said, what did you do to my dog? And I said, well, what's wrong with your dog? What happened to your dog? Well, for the first time in my life, the dog walked with me. And he didn't growl at anyone. And it was really a great report. And a couple of weeks later, the dog got loose. And the butcher brought him home on a string. So this dog went from being unapproachable to getting a thorough explanation of the culture divide between people and his kind. It was as if he said, do you mean that you weren't trying to offend me? Yeah. Are you, are you just that stupid? <laughs> and it's like, yeah, we're that stupid. <laughs> we don't mean anything by it. And we're showing you. And, and then he was okay. And this is an aside for this podcast, but I know we've talked about in class, so much of training is effective communication, yeah. not repetition. Yeah, you have to stop and think. I don't like it when people keep repeating the same thing to me. It just it annoys me. It's like you really think I'm that stupid, you know? Yeah. And I'm sure the dog feels the same way. And same with training, you know, do this 10 times over and the dog looking at you like, I've had enough of this. Yeah, we only do things 
maximum two times. Yeah. And then we start, we'll repeat something, but always braiding in new changes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, the other comment quickly from the comment I made there is that I'm very tired of people coming up to me and telling me their dog isn't going to like my dog because their male dog is neutered and mine is intact. Really? People all, tell you all that? the time. Yeah. All the time. And I too bad, then keep your dog away. I don't feel dogs have to have dog friends necessarily. I bought a dog to be my friend. When we go to classes, I pay money. He used to go three days a week. I want him paying attention to me and to what we're doing, not running around trying to play with all the dogs. And when he has his birthday party, he has six or eight adults coming and he adores them. And we don't do doggy parties. they don't have to have their dogs sniffing my dog's butt which many people on the street do oh that's what dogs do they have to do that no they don't you know yeah Uh, I'm pretty much of your mind because for one thing when you tend to have dogs with behavioral issues because you're providing homes for these dogs that are not going to make it in a normal home but they're still nice people and They, you know, don't need to die. They don't deserve to die. But we kind of just go down the road and I'll point out things to the dog I'm with. Oh, do you see how that dog is like straining at the lead? He doesn't know how to walk loosely. That's a pain in the butt. (laughs) You are so good. You just stood there and made that happen right. You are such a good dog. That dog's an idiot. (laughs) I had a situation where I was taking King the Wonder Dog, who's one of the best dogs ever born. And he was off lead, but he was totally, you know, he might as well have been on lead. He was right next to me, walking with me under good manage. You know, he was, he was controlling himself at my request. And here comes a woman. We're walking literally through the woods, not on the path. And she has five dogs off lead. And King was in his prime and bigger than any dog that she had. And I told King, leave it. I'll take care of it. And the reason I said that is because four of her dogs were fine. They were just like minding their own business. But one of the dogs looked like a lab type dog and was walking stiff leg with the hackles up on his neck. And he's coming over to challenge King. And I yell out, call your dog. Meanwhile, I scooped up an oak branch. And I'm putting this like it's a bat. I'm getting ready to protect my dog. And... She goes, well, my dog's friendly. Is your dog not friendly? Her dog was not one bit friendly. And I didn't dare, if I let her dog get close enough to King to threaten King where he had to protect himself, her dog would probably be dead. (laughs) So I just said again, call your dog. And she wasn't able to get her dog. And the dog comes walking up to King and King is standing there stock still shaking like he so wants to get this dog (laughs) and the dog 
puts his chin on King's shoulder and starts to bat, bear down like he's going to push King to the ground. And I hit the dog over the shoulders. And the lady starts protesting and yelling at me and all this. But I could not. I, I always say you have to have integrity with your animals. And if I tell my animal that I will take care of this. Yeah, you need to. <laughs> I need to. It's my responsibility. If I think I know how to handle it better than your know, dog fisticuffs, I have to come through. And the dog, the other dog just kind of staggered a minute and sunk down on the ground. And I said to King, all right, let's go. And he wagged his tail a little bit and fell in right next to me. Mm -hmm. And as we passed the owner still sauntering over to get to her dog, she's yelling at me again. And I said, can you spell lawsuit? <laughs> And she just kept walking, but she's still threatening. However, I will say to her credit that several days later, I was walking through the woods again and I saw her again and she apologized profusely. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And I told her not to worry. It can happen to anybody. But if I had not protected my dog, my dog would have taken things into his own hand and you wouldn't have a dog. Right. Yeah. You know, with the dog parks here, everybody's, uh, oh, dogs have to go to dog parks. They have to have dog friends. And there have been incidents in the local one here where idiot owners start beating up their dog attacks another dog and they beat the other dog to get their dog away. You know, just crazy things. Yeah. No yeah. People get emotional and they don't know what they're doing and they don't have any expertise. I don't know any professionals that go to the dog park. No, no. And I, we go outside the dog park because yeah. we use those dogs coming in and out to train with. Yeah. But I'm not going to sit there and let a dog off the lead and hope that everything comes out okay. Yeah. And most of these people, they their dogs aren't even friendly. They don't check to think about, you know, is my dog good fit for this kind of environment? They just want to have the dog run and they go home, they're tired and they just turn them loose. Yeah. Well, that's like some of the parents I know where, <laughs> you know, they've got this like glazed look on their eyes and they're oblivious to their offspring that are underneath the table at the restaurant and pouring yeah. sugar packets on the carpet. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm a professional face painter, so I, I can definitely, you know, there's so many wonderful kids, wonderful parents, but some of them are a disaster. And usually yeah. the, the kid that's the biggest disaster, the parents even worse when they're in line, you know. Well, we love all these kids and we love the parents, but guess what, parents? All of these things that we talk about with the dogs, they work with people. Cynelia means with others and it's with all living beings. This is a good way to be with others. So Jackie, let's make sure we covered your points that you brought up. Uh, let's see. Have your dog spayed or neutered it to protect the pet population, which 
Yeah, I don't we blame you. We know who that is on the Price is Right that says that at the end of every show. Or, or do you oh, want okay. Every time I think about who I'd like to neuter. You know? Yeah, really. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, it's like, and also it's, it's none of their business. That's like telling parents, um, obviously you should have had your tubes tied. <laughs> it's not your business. Well, the point is, you know, you shouldn't let a dog loose anyway. Why get a dog if you're going to let it loose and run around and breed other dogs and get killed by cars? I mean, it doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, exactly. Now, another uh, podcast that you commented on that I was really gratified to see was the one on dog farms versus uh, rescues. Yeah. And I am so thankful that you listened to that. So what did you find surprising in that one? Well, the one that I didn't know when I wrote it, if you would be very happy that I wrote it. But when I used to work like about 40 years ago, I used to work at a four vet practice and it was across the street from a big shopping mall and they had a pet store. And in those days, all the pet stores, like 40 years ago, they right. all had pet stores with cute little puppies in them. And the kids would talk daddy into get buying them the puppy. And they had no idea what characteristics that breed of puppy might have. But we were the ones that uh, had a contract with that particular one. It was doctors pet shop it. And we had the contract to certify the health on all those puppies that would come okay. in from the Midwest. And a lot of them were sick. It was really sad. And a few years later, none of the pet store, I assuming the government came in and took a look at it. I don't know if part of it was the condition they kept them in later too, but I know a lot of them they brought in were sick. And I don't know if the dog farms you're talking about are better as far as the health of these dogs they're producing and letting go out. And maybe well, it was the ones in the Midwest they were getting them from, I don't know. Well, here's something that they may not have known then, although they should have because my original information comes from back then too. But anyway, um, you are going to always have sick dogs in a situation. It doesn't matter if they're rescue dogs, shelter dogs, backyard breeder dogs, uh, professional breeder dogs, or farm dogs, you know, like uh, the, the commercially farm dogs. And that is because everything is exposed to diseases throughout their life. But most of the time, our immune systems are keeping those diseases in check. Whenever you transfer an animal, the stress from the move, I don't care how you do it. The stress from the move increases the odds that that animal will get sick or die three times greater than it would normally be for him hmm. for an entire year. Hmm. So for example, I got tested for diseases because I worked with monkeys and the monkeys got tested for diseases. And my monkey had reovirus type two, but she didn't give it. I had it too. Everybody has it. 80% of the adult humans in America have real virus type two. Hmm. 
if you get an outbreak, it normally just causes diabetes, uh, not diabetes, um, diarrhea, diarrhea. Yeah. Thanks. And it can cause death. So if your immune system goes down, you're going to see symptoms. And if you have a serious stressor, then you can have, you know, this much greater chance of getting sick or dying for such a long time. But when you move an animal or there's some other big change, let's say uh, puberty, right? Or breeding season, first litter, whatever. These things really can knock an animal down. And for the entire 30 days after these events, the animal's blood gases don't even go to normal. Hmm. So this is, you know, normally our bodies have a very good ability to buffer our body systems. The pH doesn't deviate very much in either direction, not basic or acidic. But when an animal gets a stress, then they lose their ability to keep that homeostasis for over a month. So this is why all animal professionals, like if you're a game farm or a zoo or an oceanarium, we automatically quarantine the animals for 30 days and longer if they don't look like they're recovering. And it's not that we think that people are sending us sick animals and we have to ferret them out. It's that we know that all animals have subclinical infections. So we want to protect them for long enough that they can get their uh, sea legs. You know, they can be able to hold their own in this new environment. And this makes me, I'm always controversial and I'm not trying to be difficult, but when, you know, these things are so nuanced and complex that there isn't an easy solution, but all these people get puppies and they're told, oh, you need to socialize them. There's just a little window during mm -hmm. which you can socialize them. Yep. Well, there there's ways to socialize animals without taking them to puppy classes or, you know, to the mall or pet smart or whatever, you know, where they're going to get exposed to a bunch of other animals and a bunch of new conditions all while they're trying to adjust to their new home. So we recommend that people teach name and explain and all these, um, concepts and vocabulary and do lots of little things at home, but don't change environments where you're going to expose your animal to a lot of new sources of disease. They In used to say wait till four months till they've had all of their shots for years and years and years, you know, don't put them on the floor anywhere where another dog has been. Yeah, and yeah. then lately, last few years, they've changed it to get them out there or you're going to have, a, at least with bloodhounds, you're going to have a real problem. They take the, you know, 10 week old puppy to the dog show with them with the bigger dogs and yeah. walk them on the ground and everything else. So I, I don't know which is right, but. Yeah, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with taking them to the dog show. And come on, 
I had a lot of dogs and a lot of puppy dogs. We bred some Irish setters, so on and so forth. Those dogs were great. Yeah. It is not necessary to, you know, just drag them all over the place early on. And I get it. I understand you're excited and you want to share your puppy and you want to show them everything that's neat with life. 30 days is not that long to wait. And one last thing I'll say about that is, you know, people will go, well, I did that with my dog and he lived through it. Ah, but we have dogs dying of autoimmune disease and cancer at a higher rate than previously. Yeah. Why? Why? You know, once a disease process gets started, you may not know it for a while. So let's not overwhelm the animal's immune system early on, you know, so that he'll be better able to deal with these things. Well, Jackie, we've been actually talking for quite a while. I've really enjoyed it. So have I. Thank you so much. And let's do another podcast because I still want to talk to you about your experiences with the Intermediate Bridge. And we still have the Euthanasia podcast to do. Definitely. And the plane has been terrific with Disney. That's really great. How? uh, Like, okay, now you've lured me into it. What did it do for you? Well, the big thing was when I first started taking your classes, you kept saying, talk to the dog, talk to the dog. And you just feel kind of stupid because I feel like he doesn't understand. But then once you mentioned, I don't remember if it was in the podcast or in one of the things I took, that it's like noise in the background that keeps them from thinking about the trouble they were thinking of getting into. Yeah, right. It, It keeps their attention, which is so true. And so I know when I go to the dentist, I'm terrified of shots. And I tell him, just keep talking to me. Talk to me about my dog. If you have a dog, I want to hear all about your dog. And as long as my mind's on that, I'm not worried about the shot. But otherwise, I'm just really upset. And It's a a very useful strategy because when you get the animal's mental focus on something else, even if they're just going stupid woman doesn't she know i'm a dog and she's speaking english to me that's good enough because that gets him off of the hyper arousal and the biting and all that kind of thing the other thing i was excited in one of these you mentioned something about a hyper gene that they've discovered oh yeah that was i think i got the one with disney because i've got 12 12 bloodhounds and now that i'm old i end up with this one and right grandma was an agility champion and this thing is just wild yeah because you mentioned him going over your sofas and everything else that's all he does for entertainment he flies from one and across the room onto another one and that's that's a big airplane and and he's at the chiropractor every two weeks, and she says he's a crash car dummy. There's nothing physically wrong with him except that I fix him, and now they're going to do every other week he's going to the acupuncturist trying to fix his back. Jeez. But if he just quit flying, he'd be fine. Well, and so let's touch one other thing that you brought up that I was really gratified to hear, but I was also surprised, which was... In the in the stuff that we'd gone over together in the class setting, it didn't really somehow translate what the intermediate bridge, how it was used. Right. 
and the fact that the importance of the fluency. Yes. So there's a rhythm to everything. If you guys are on Facebook, you know that if there's an important conversation, you've got to get in there and comment in a timely way or your comment doesn't get responded to. And it's just like that with animals. When you start a conversation with them, there's a rate of engagement and your communication needs to flow and then they'll answer and then you give them another response and then they'll answer you. And it's a, you know, like uh, playing tennis or something it goes back and forth. You must be fluent. And with the intermediate bridge, that's not quite conversation. It's feedback. Yeah. It tells the animal at this instant, you are either correct or on the right path to be correct. But do it for us now, Jackie. I want to give you a chance to do it before I do it. How do you bridge now? Well, uh, I got to some point in what I was reading, I don't remember exactly where, that there is approximately eight times a second. You start with yeah. like XXX for excellent or gah, gah, gah for good. But I, when I was first doing it, I just went gah, 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 you know, and stopped because he didn't yeah. seem to care. And I found that when I'm doing it that way, you had mentioned it's like when you listen to a band and you kind of want to rock in your seat. And I'm right. I have arthritis and back problems and I can't go to concerts anymore because I can't sit still if I'm there. Right. Yeah. You stir your back out. I do the same thing with my honey here, my baby bloodhound, 120 pounder. It seems to lure him into wanting to do what I'm working it on. Does. Or before you just kind of walk off and look at me like, you know, when I have time, I'll come talk to you. We have people reporting that when they hear me, the dogs hear me bridging. Even if I didn't teach these dogs, they will spontaneously come up to the computer, listen to it and start wagging their tails. Oh, cute. <laughs> but also you can modulate the bridge so you can go. And these different modulations tell different things. For example, as we're walking close to, let's say the dogs reacted to other dogs. Okay, stay easy. So we make the apex as we're passing yeah. the other animal and that keeps our dogs focus on us and the bridge. It works like magic. And, and the other thing you said that you don't have to do it forever. Once the dog has learned a particular thing, yeah. you know, like I teach Dizzy, go touch the doorknob in the front door just because it's fun for me to get, you know, have him focus on me and go do what I ask him. But I used to go, 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 go. But after a while, he knows, go touch doorknob. He goes and does it. So you don't right. keep bridging forever. Yeah. Any more than like, I remember when I was a kid, my mom taught me to tie my shoes. And then there came a time where I didn't want any more help. It's like, no, I want to do it myself. Yeah. And that's the same thing that happens. Well, we better call it quit to this one, but it's been such fun. Yes, I really will do another one. I'd love to. And thanks for commenting and helping us figure out how. Hey fans, are you enjoying training with Casey? Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Casey Covert on YouTube. That is youtube.com forward slash C slash Casey Cover. Also give 
the podcast a like, share, and comment. Thanks for joining us. Come back for more news and views on animal training and living with animals. Stay at the top of the pack with Casey. This is Joseph Laughlin, producer of Training with Casey. See you next time.